Welcome to It's a Material World, the show that uncovers why material science will change the world, with your hosts, David Yeh and Puniku Papia. Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to mention that we created a free professional development guide for MSCs, which you can find in the show notes below. And without further ado, let's get started. All right, everyone. So today we're changing it up a little bit. As you can see, there is no guest for today's episode. And instead, David and I will be discussing our experiences in our respective job searches for internships and full-time roles over the past five years and the strategies that came with it. So while there may be some overlap with episode 12, which discussed professional development strategies for MSEs, this episode focuses more on the strategies you can implement in your job search right now, rather than discussing experiences to take on that will set yourself up well with applications. And we're also super excited to announce the launch of our MSE Career Development online course, which is designed for both prospective and current students. And we'll touch on that throughout the episode. Yeah. So yeah, we're, we're really excited today to kind of walk you through a couple of main areas of advice that we think are going to be very helpful, especially in the time where career search is really ramping up because fall is when a lot of recruiting is done. So we're going to try to hit a bunch, a lot of different high-level things, but of course, there's a lot more to see, and I highly recommend looking at our course in further detail if you find any of this interesting. Absolutely. So I think we're going to start off with resume tips. And one thing that's always come up when I'm talking to recruiters or even advisors is the idea of quantifying your results within your bullet points. That's sometimes difficult when you have NDAs or you don't really know how the whole process went, but just in general, just finding some way to quantify like to what extent you improved a process by in terms of efficiency, or if you got into a paper, for example, like that was something that we did for our capstone project, including the impact factor. That was something that I did as one of my bullet points. So what are your thoughts on that, David? Anything to add there? Yeah, I think the most important part about quantifying a result is that it takes out any need for the interviewer or the person you're talking to to have any relevant knowledge, right? We all know how percentages work. And so if you talk about like a machine downtime, like I could say 30 minute downtime reduce, like in a 24 hour day, like how much is that really? How much downtime was there? Right. Stuff like that. But if I tell you a 75% decrease in downtime, you automatically know exactly the impact. And so when we look at quantifying factors, the recruiter isn't going to know a lot about anything you did. And so by making it in a universal language that we all understand, helps go a long way when we're talking to people and so that they know exactly the impact we had on any one project. Mm -hmm. And so I know that for your application with Tesla, that was easier to do for like your leadership experiences since you had that full control. Is there a reason there is less of that in like the rest of your experiences? Yeah. So I think that if you look at my resume, the things that make it hard to quantify experiences are basically twofold. One is that internships itself are very closed uh, when you have like one project that you work on the entire summer and then you leave. And so a lot of projects you have are a lot of legwork to get it going. And then the execution happens once you leave. And so when we talk about quantifying results, you can talk about some initial projections, but then the second part is NDAs. So you can work on these really cool projects and you make all the legwork, but you can't really talk about all the specifics until it's released to the public. And so that makes it a little tricky when you talk about it. So I found that the most helpful things to do when you can't really talk about the specifics is talk more generally about techniques you did, lessons you learned, any skills you learned along the way that can also be translated to more universal. And if you can't really quantify it that well with numbers, try to quantify it with speech and other things. So being able to say like fabricated a new setup, like everybody kind of knows if you make a new tool, what that kind of implies. And then there's follow-up questions behind it, like what software did you use? What hardware did you use? And it can kind of lead you to a better way instead of just trying to make some numbers that you really have no idea are true or not. True, true. And I'm interested to get your thoughts on this. Something that 
when I heard this for the first time, I was like, okay, how can I quantify this bullet point or this bullet point or this bullet point? And it got to a point where my resume was filled with what I think was too many numbers to the point where I had to cut down. And I think it has to tie in with this idea where it's like, you don't have to make up stuff or even like, you don't have to quantify everything. I think recruiters can also see that too. So do you agree with that sentiment that there is such thing as quantifying too much? Yeah, I think that you can kind of tell when someone's just making up numbers to make up numbers. And so I think that not all bullet points have to be technical, you know, there's like a lot of other skills that you learn throughout an internship. And so they can be just as important as like the technical parts of it. And so I think like a more holistic approach would be the inclusion of both. And that could kind of set you up for future discussions because just because you don't have it on your resume, you really just want talking points to get people to converse with you more because there's no way that you can condense an entire three month period into three bullet points. (laughs) So really it's just trying to engage with someone else. And I think that's the most important part about what you're trying to put on your resume and quantifying it or not, just make it engaging to the point where it aligns with what people want to talk about more. Absolutely. So we can move on to the skills section. I think that's pretty key as well. One thing that I was taught since freshman year was including like a materials subsection in the skills section. And that from what I've seen has afforded me the opportunity to add various keywords that I think would be relevant to these material specific jobs. And then also even with the laboratory subsection, like SEM or tensile testing and things like that. I thought those are things that recruiters would love to see. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I think you bring up a great point with basically doing keywords. And so shining light into how recruitment works is that they use something called an ATS or an applicant tracking system. And so when you feed in a resume to a, a site, they basically have algorithms that compare your resume with the job description. And so skills is a great place to pad keywords that you see in a job description because they count hits. They don't really, basically once you get enough hits, then the recruiter takes a look at it. And so what I was told was that you want to like pad your skills and then also mention it in like your description, because assuming that you use like an SEM at your job, you have an SEM in your description underneath your job and you can have it again in your skills. So now you're hitting it twice and that's more valuable than just once. So I think that's where it really comes in handy. Uh, One question I had for you was when you say a material subsection, maybe you could explain a little bit further into that and like what keywords you found were most effective. Sure. The skill section for me was always kind of at the, the bottom, but I know you can kind of either put it right at the top or right at the bottom. And within that, I had separated it by various subsections. So on the left hand column, it was materials, laboratory software and and things like that. And then also languages. So materials was just MSE specific things like metallurgy or like alloys or polymer science, things like that, where that was exactly what you said. That was something that they desired in the job application, in the job description. And I was just able to add that as a key word so that recruiters would see, okay, this guy has knowledge of that. And there really wasn't other places to put it. I think it's, if you have it in your experiences or like in relevant coursework, for example, then you don't have to double count it, but that was just another way to show that I have this diverse knowledge base. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I kind of have grown to like having the skills on the top because one thing interesting that you can find online is just called a heat map of a resume. And it's just an analysis of where recruiters' eyes go to the most. And I'm sure if anybody gives you a resume, it's kind of obvious. You look at the top block and then you zoom down the left-hand column to see if there's anything of interest. And so it's kind of growing on me is that you want to basically do like a summary, just like if you look at any sort of news article, it's like they always try to grab you with a headline. Mm -hmm. So you want to grab the recruiter with like a summary, like I am a fifth year majoring in this, concentrating in this with experience in this. And then you can have skills underneath about the things that would be important for a job description. And I think the biggest thing is that you do want to craft it to each individual job. No job that you be applying for is exactly the same. And I think that's why 
people have success with some companies, but comparable companies don't accept them on the other side because it's not the same fit. No one company is going to be the same exact as a competitor or else (laughs) that's kind of against the entire point of competitors that you want to improve upon what they're lacking at and vice versa. So I I think that that's a great idea with the skills and highlighting what you know and in what areas. That's really interesting that you mentioned this heat map visualization. And that makes sense. I mean, you're supposed to kind of bold your titles and and the companies that you work at. And that's kind of like the first thing that you see when you're going down the list. I'm sure that recruiters are, are really eyeing that. But one thing that I never did, but I think would have been something that would have been extra beneficial is that like objective statement at, at the beginning. I always felt like I could contribute more in that one page limit that I, I had always set for myself by talking more about my experiences or adding more bullet points. But that, what are your thoughts on the objective statement versus including more lines, right? It's all about that space on that one page for other experiences and other bullet points. Yeah. So I think it's kind of tricky. Uh, I think objective statements like I am a third year looking for a research opportunity gives you no value. Like, of course, you're looking for a research opportunity. That's why you're applying. (laughs) And so I think I would highly discourage doing an objective statement like that. I think that in industry, I've talked to multiple recruiters, they all highly discourage that because you're not telling me anything new. It's really not beneficial. And it kind of just like, okay, great. Like you want this. That's great. That's why we're here. And so I think a better way to do an objective statement is more of a summary of your experiences. And so it's just like, if you like pull up on your computer, your resume and read it in like a PDF viewer, that area that you see is going to be the first thing that you see. So I think in that area alone, you can highlight your roles, your experience and skills. And it's going to be like the top third of your page or top fourth of your page. I think that's where it's more attractive to use that real estate with very high hitting emphasis on what you're good at and who you are. So I would more encourage that than like, I am looking for this and this and this. That makes sense. So one thing that held me back from it is I would repeat some of the same things that were on the rest of the resume. I totally get this idea of like, it's a hook. You're capturing the recruiter's attention. How do you provide some distinct value that isn't already found somewhere else on the page or best catches the recruiter's attention. Yeah, I think this is more of advice about how your resume should evolve over time. I think that a first year probably doesn't have enough experience to really warrant an objective statement like this. I think when you start getting towards the end of your college and postgraduate summary or resume, rather, that's when you can start to move into this more because that's when you have enough experience where you can talk broadly about the areas of expertise and the skills you learn across all of them and then talk more in detail in each role you've had about what you've learned, what experience you've had, what impact did you have. And I think that's where you kind of want to see your resume change from year to year to year. It, it, should, it should never be exactly the same from the year before, just with the new section, you know? And so I think, I think that's where it's more of a judgment call. And can I talk more broadly in an impactful manner, or am I just going to be repeating myself? And if I'm just going to be repeating the next two things, then that probably means I don't have enough to do this type of objective statement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was looking back at my resume going into freshman year and looking at it now. And it's so different. I mean, there was so much white space on that first resume, but it makes sense, right? Like you're not supposed to have all of these experiences. So naturally you will gain those talking points. So that's, that's a good point. And speaking of those experiences, one thing that I believe is super important when applying to like engineering based roles where there's a lot of collaboration and teamwork is leadership experiences. David, you were the CEO of the mill. I was the president of Material Advantage at Georgia Tech. And so those were definitely valuable experiences where we were able to have this like systems level thinking and also manage teams, work with a a variety of people and ultimately give back to our community. And I think that goes a long way with recruiters is being able to see that they would be a good culture fit and that they can work well in a team. And I think that if you don't have those experiences, then just kind of get involved with 
organizations that you're passionate about. It does not have to be MSE focused or even take on side projects. And hopefully you can find these like team collaboration experiences along the way. Those really go a long way to fill gaps where you might not have like the coursework or the industry experience. I would agree with everything you said. I think the most impactful part about being a leader is I'm sure you've gotten this question. And so if I ask you, what is the time when you work with someone difficult? What example do you give? And like, it's most likely going to be in the time that you were the leader because you have to do with other people. And so I think that being in the head of something or in the leadership of something shows to the recruiter that you know how to deal with people. And I think that a desirable skill in general is that you know how to interact with people. In work, I don't think I've ever done anything entirely alone. And so I'm going to have to interact with people. And so I think that's when it becomes important to have a really good example about, I led the charge. This is what I did. There's always difficulties. I don't think I've ever had a perfect team. And everything is going to happen at some point. And I think it's just a great uh, talking point and kind of highlights like, yes, I know how to work in a team situation. Mm -hmm. And it also shows that you had ownership of a project that ultimately involved like talking to other people. I think, you know, it shows that you're more than just doing schoolwork all the time, right? It shows that you're well-rounded and that you have like extracurriculars that you can talk about. So totally agree there. And then one other thing with the, with the resume tips that wanted to get your input on one page or more than one page is okay. I've heard so many different perspectives about this. Uh, It's a very hard choice. I think that if you're still in college, you need to be extraordinary to be over two pages in the course, I give an example resume, and I think I am a bit of a hypocrite there because it is two pages. So I, I got, you know, want to explain myself and my reasoning. <laughs> you're patting yourself on the back. You're, you're extraordinary is what you're <laughs> no, telling me. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself extraordinary. I think it's very, very difficult to warrant two pages when you're still in school, just because it's both a numbers game and how you want to be it. So there's two sides to it. For a recruiter, if you're talking to a recruiter, they're almost never going to get to the second page, right? So you could fill up a second page, but then you're going to want to front load everything. And so everything that doesn't really matter is going to be on the second page. So why do you have a second page at all? And so I would say that if I was going to career fair, I would have a one-page resume. I think that two-pages resume is very hard to justify in that essence. I think when you apply for a job online, I think that that's where it starts to get a little tricky. And my reasoning is because of that ATS, and that's how I applied to Tesla was online, is that the more I can pack into my resume, the more keywords I can hit, that's when it starts to become more valuable to have extra real estate, you know? And so I don't exactly know if that's the best way to do it, because in the end, someone is going to have to look at it. But in my eyes that I've already passed the first test, so they're willing to read that second page. And so I would highly recommend that you can have like a master two-pager like I have, but then pick and choose exactly what you want for a job and make it a one-page and then use that one-page to send it because not everything is going to be like extremely relevant to what you're doing. And so I think that it's more important to create a relevant one-page for when you go to a career fair or you talk to a recruiter than create a two-page that has everything you've done that isn't entirely relevant And I think that that's important. But of course, the reason why I did a two-page for Tesla was to try to eke my way through that app and tracking system and try to get more hits to get a view because it's it's really competitive to even get a view. And so that's kind of my reasoning. But I I think that everybody should have a one-page resume. And I think the important part about that is that each of those points that you make in a resume have to be relevant to that specific job description. I think a lot of people just kind of add stuff because it's important, it's something noteworthy, but it might not have been noteworthy for that specific role. And so that's why when I was looking through your resume, you had a lot for like your battery research experience. And that was because it was super relevant to the cell engineering internship. And so, I mean, it worked, right? So like, congratulations. But I think that's just something that I wanted to note 
is you have to make sure that it's relevant. Exactly. Now, I think that's a very good high-level overview of some of the biggest flaws that I've seen with other people and from the feedback I've gotten from recruiters, exactly how you should do it. And so I think that's a really good high-level overview. Cool. So before we get into application tips, we just wanted to talk more about this MSE Career Development online course really quickly. It includes what I think is like all the resources I wish I had going into college and then also as an MSE student looking for internship and full-time opportunities. So super excited to bring this to you guys. We brought together 14 young MSc professionals from a variety of schools and industries to share an overview of their role and the company, as well as relevant MSc principles and concepts so you know how to translate what you were learning in class to this specific application. And then they are also sharing actionable strategies to land an interview for that specific industry, including networking resume tips like we just did and interview tips. And so these mentors have experience in a variety of companies, SpaceX, David with Tesla, Nike, I'm working at Boston Scientific, Gore, PNG, Applied Materials, and a ton more. We're also including their resumes and cover letters to use as templates and to show you a blueprint for success if you want to follow that path. And also one thing that as I was reviewing all the videos, it was very evident that networking is as important as ever. So we are also offering a community so you can get instant access for Q&A with these mentors, just consistent networking. And then we're also providing resume feedback, weekly group coaching, and more. So for more info, just visit the link in the show notes below or the description or you can visit www.mscacademy.com. Yeah, I think that's a great overview of what we're trying to accomplish. And really, it's hard out there to know exactly how to get to these big companies or just how to navigate yourself through it. Because it's one thing to gain experience, and it's another thing to sell yourself. And I think that I've gotten a lot of good advice from those around me who's had more experience. And I think that talking to these other mentors, I've gained a lot more insight into how they got their jobs. And it's just a very good amalgamation of a lot of really good tips for, and it even has specific tips for each company that I think are very insightful that at least have given me the thing to think about in my current job search. Yeah, no, super excited for it. And we're, we're here to answer any questions if you, if you have David, I wanted to talk more about application tips. And this one's something that's not really a pet peeve, but just something that I've noticed and I've also done in the past, but I don't think it's the most efficient thing to do is applying to hundreds of roles online and then just continuing to repeat that same process. And if you're not having any luck, then why do you continue to do that is, is my thinking. And so that's why from what I found, Nearly all the success I've had with my job search process involves reaching out to people, whether they're already in my network or outside of my network on LinkedIn, and just developing those relationships with new connections that I make. Is that something you've, you've seen too, David? Yeah, I would definitely say that a very successful way is getting someone that you can talk to bump your resume up because it's so easy. If you go onto LinkedIn, it's like an instant LinkedIn like apply, like, sure, I can apply to 10 jobs and they just get my LinkedIn resume. So it really makes it hard to now differentiate ourselves in the sea where it's become so easy to apply to all these jobs. And now that we're talking about remote work now, even more people are flooding in. And so I think that the best way to get any traction there is to have someone on the inside help bump yourself up. And so maybe you want to talk about how to find someone like in like the inside to help you bump yourself up. Yeah, no, this is something that um, I had to figure out just over like the past nine months. But really, from what I've seen, LinkedIn goes a long way where I could go to these companies that I'm interested in. I can go to their pages. And then there's also a people section within their pages. And so I'm just searching for roles that I'm interested in, maybe even like on the like their careers website, you know, if I see materials engineer or process engineer, and I'm interested in that, 
then I can find someone who's already in that role at that company and then just invite them to connect. So you can add a note if you want and really just like empathize with them, you know, say like be genuine, be specific. Don't go asking for a job or anything like that. Just ask to set up like 20, 30 minute chat with them. I think from what I've seen, everybody that I've connected with has been super willing to help. They've been in your shoes. They've been in my shoes before. So they're willing to kind of pass it forward. And it's something that now that I have my job, I've been able to pass it forward a little bit too. So you you just send a quick note, ask for a quick chat and say, you know, I love this about your profile. This is where I'm at. Would you be willing to just like chat more about the role and discuss like strategies for success, characteristics to be successful? So I thought that was super effective. Yeah. Going back to the original question about like, you don't have to apply to hundreds of these roles is that I think we've all seen a post online. Like I applied to 170 jobs. I got six callbacks and like, like it's supposed to be like a power of like a story of empowerment about like, oh, I overcome these odds. But going back to what I said about the resume is that your resume should be tailored to the job you're looking at because you remember it's being matched up to the job description. So unless that person has done 170 different resumes, I think it's more valuable to really identify the roles that you want specifically and take a little bit more time to craft the resume around the role and keywords that they're looking for than it is to just blast it out. And I think that what Preneeth is talking about is about connecting to people online is uh, there's usually a lot of internal referrals. And so there's like portals on like these big companies for them to refer. And usually the result of getting an internal referral is that you get a first round interview. So you make it to the top and then it's on you to perform. But that's an opportunity that is really hard to come by if you're just applying in mass would be like my biggest advice. Yeah, absolutely. And there's like benefit for for them too, outside of just helping people. I think there's a bunch of companies that give that employee bonuses for successful referrals where they do end up in a role. So just keep that in mind. And if you can get like contact info for the recruiter and the hiring manager, then one other thing I think is is key is being able to translate that and maybe set up an additional conversation with the hiring manager or even like showcase, you know, why exactly you'd be successful. We touch on additional strategies with that in our online course, including kind of templates to do so and uh, strategies to do so. I guess the the last question around this maybe that you can explain to me is for someone who has never reached out to a professional to, to talk like this, I know it could be daunting because we just said, don't ask them for a job, but then how do you continue the conversation? How do you convert someone you just talked to and you convert them to a potential lead? I think honestly, being genuine and not asking for a job really helps with that. When you have these informational interviews, I think that's like the first big step is you just ask them about their experiences. A lot of people like to talk about what they've gone through, and then you can translate that, the flow of the conversation. You talk about where you're at in the process, what questions you genuinely have, and then you can talk about characteristics that are required to be successful. And then you can always wrap up. I literally always wrap up the call saying, this was really great. I learned a lot about the role. Is there anyone you'd recommend reaching out to, to learn more about X, Y, or Z, or like their leadership style or like the group as a whole, you know? So I think that can be a switch to turn that into a lead. And then I think they're always willing, like if you are actually a kind person, you, you show that you'd be a good culture fit. They're willing to recommend you for relevant roles. Yeah. I think that's a a great tip. And I think the line that you tread between asking them for a job and asking for help is one that people can find difficult. But I think that the points you emphasized are how you keep on the right line. And I, I agree. I think people are willing to help. And I think the important part about an informational interview is kind of showing to them that you're someone who they would want to work with as well, because you would be probably applying to like a, a similar group. And so they're more likely to want like someone who they think they get along with, think that would be a good addition than someone who's kind of rude is asking for things that kind of gives off the wrong vibe. And so I think that's also something to keep in mind when you go into these informational interviews. For sure. And I think that is important is if you make that connection 
just whatever you do, don't immediately say like, Hey, I like, I like this role. Can you refer me to it? If they don't know who you are, they're going to be turned away from that instead of like willing to help. So just like you mentioned, I think it's about developing that connection first, maybe having multiple calls and then network effects are really powerful. So always ending those calls saying, Hey, do you have anyone else that you recommend reaching out to? Would you be willing to set up that connection? So that definitely goes a long way too. And then I guess another component of that, because even with this full-time job search, perseverance was so important there because there was a time period where I was applying to roles, but not getting any calls back. All I wanted to say is that timing is so important there. Sometimes it just doesn't match up where you're applying kind of too early. Like they're still looking for someone who can come in January when you don't graduate until May. And so I was applying to roles for like one to two months, not really getting a lot of luck. And then all of a sudden in March, I had multiple interviews with three different medical device companies all in one week. And by the following week, I was able to wrap up my job search process altogether. So just wanted to keep keep that emphasized is just be perseverant and still continue to like put in that effort of like working smarter, not harder. So you don't always have to just resort to applying to hundreds of roles. So I think you gave a great synopsis of almost a cold call to a company or an online application to a company is that is like a great way to like get yourself seen, get yourself bumped. I think the greatest opportunity for all students is career fairs, in-person info sessions and recruiting sessions. So maybe you can kind of walk us through like some of some tips and strategies to get seen at these events. And basically if you can get seen, that is a great way to get immediately transfer to the fast track on interview processes and potentially offers. Yeah, for sure. I think with my internship at GE Aviation, this was before COVID. The biggest thing that I did was continue to show up. I realized that there was a info session before career fair had started. So I attended that, handed in my resume and was just able to like shake people's hands and really empathize with these recruiters. I was, I just asked them like, how's your day going? Has it been exhausting? I know you're talking to a lot of people. Just starting that conversation actually goes a long way because they remember that you're not just another face out of hundreds. And then if you can continue to build on that by seeing them at the career fair the next day, and then seeing them at your major specific career fair. That's what I did with GE Aviation. And I got an interview that following Wednesday and then the following week got an offer. So I think that definitely goes a long way. It's just, there's this soft skills side of things that maybe not all engineers inherently have, but if you can just develop those conversations and continue to show up, people will remember your face and they're going to be more willing to give you an interview. I think the biggest tip is definitely don't be like a, like a fire hydrant. Like <laughs> as soon as they open you up, just get, splash all the information on them. I think that that's really how you turn them off. And so I think that for each individual thing that we talk about, career fair, in-person, info session, recruiting session, they all kind of had different like kind of vibes to them. And so what I mean by that is that when you're in an in-person info session, I think that I got an internship with Georgia Pacific. And the way I started was just, asking about their job, like, what do they do? Like, what types of projects do they work on? Stuff like that. And then as the conversation flowed, I kind of started to input some of my experience, like, oh, that's really cool. Like, I'm material science. Like, I've done a lot of materials characterization and stuff like that. And like, when it flowed, and then at the end of it, before I even got the offer, he's like, do you have a resume? And that was a really easy way to kind of convey that is that you start just like getting to know them, work it, and then as it makes sense in the conversation, start to input some of the information. But the way I was talking about is that that's a very different vibe to one at the career fair where it very is much more business oriented. Mm -hmm. So just kind of knowing like how fast to turn it on, what type of like information you need to immediately put out there, stuff like that, uh, I think would be very helpful uh, to think about when you go into each individual session. And that's kind of the point of having these different sessions is because there's different environments for recruiters to get to meet students and understand who they are. Like, do you have to rush into it? Can you just kind of take it more slow? Do you get a one-on-one? Is it a group setting? How you can kind of manipulate your surroundings into kind of working them in the direction that you want to go to so you can talk about yourself 
Because that's the ultimate goal is that you want to highlight what you could bring to the table. For sure. I think that was really important. What you mentioned is asking questions goes a long way to maintaining a natural flow of the conversation. But maybe that is more or that's easier to do in a info session where you can just kind of go to recruiters one-on-one and just have that conversation, ask questions. Whereas at a career fair, they kind of expect you to hand your resume and then give your elevator pitch, right? So that's a little bit of a tougher game to play. But one thing that I've seen at all of those different types of events is companies who don't really know exactly what material science and engineering is and how materials engineers can contribute to that company. And so it's it's a difficult question to answer because it's such a versatile field and it's very dependent on the company. So I can only give some general advice, but one thing you can definitely mention because they know what mechanical engineers and chemical engineers are, is that you can highlight that you take a lot of the same classes that Emmys and Chemies take, including like thermodynamics. I know that's a big one, but you mentioned that this is a blend of physics and chemistry. And then you can talk about how, how do materials play a role at this company? And so just in general, you can talk about how your knowledge of the structure and the processing of those materials could help in making their processes more efficient, for instance. I think a good tip would be to understand how being an MSC makes you special or how you can differentiate yourself from the crowd, because that is a really good point is that MSC could be a weakness if you explain it poorly and they're like, I have no idea what you do, or it could be a strength where you are a very niche role that no one else can do because you have disciplines from all different types of cross-functional areas. And that could be a strength for you. And I think that can make a really big break or make it situation because you can kind of explain to them how you are different and why that's good. Mm -hmm. Do you have any experiences or any advice there in terms of differentiating, like explaining exactly what MSE is and how how it makes you a unique and potentially best fit for that company? Yeah. So I I would say that it kind of helps with your diversification. So because your material science, the entire idea is that you understand the fundamental underlying principles of materials and how they work. And so what that helps you do is that if I switch from a battery company to a plastics company, I have to be able to explain like why I can bring straights from one internship and not completely lose all of them. So understanding like things that are tangentially related. And that's where I found a lot of strength is that I can say, hey, like I have, even though that these aren't the same experiences, the underlying principles are the same, which I know about from my major. And that means I can take my experience from this place and apply it to a whole different subset of materials. And that's why I'm a strong candidate. And then I would say the other thing is that it also like opens up new avenues for things that aren't processing heavy. And so one of my main talking points while I was trying to get data science was that what is material science than basically statistics? If you think about the Arrhenius equation, it's just the probability that <laughs> like the molecule will get enough energy to excite, right? Yeah. And so being able to put that into terms of people who are statisticians to now say, oh, that's right. Like we all of like, like basically quantum mechanics and all that stuff is just probability. And so to be able to say, I have all this experience in a fundamental knowledge, which is just going to be applied to specific data science was a very strong thing that helped me get over their original hesitancy about <laughs> you're not a math major, you're not a stats major, you're not ISYE ISWE major, why are you even here? And so I think that that really helped me overcome that giant hurdle of you're not any of the majors that we've ever recruited before. Why are you here? Mm-hmm. And I think what what else came into play could be like your side projects too. We don't have to go into all the details there, but I'm sure like that and your capstone project for like TNM also definitely went a long way to showing that you have this interest in data science. And I think you can tie all of that together. Include, But I think what you said is super important is empathizing with the recruiter and the company's needs, and then using that to your advantage. Uh, Being able to supplement where you are deficient in with other experiences 
that you can either pay for through classes or just try out for free is always a good way to help you make a tangential switch through industries to like start something new if you want to try something new. I think the last section that we wanted to talk about is interview tips. And, you know, there's generally two different categories here, behavioral interviews and technical interviews. I've actually never had like a MSc technical interview. So maybe we can start there and I can kind of pass this off to you to hear what you what you have to say since you've had one very recently. I don't know. Technical interviews are very tricky uh, and they're going to look different from each specific role. Maybe even just giving like your preparation and how you were able to do the research for that or answer those questions, you know? I think the most important part about going to a very tech heavy side is finding out what group you're going to be working for and then what technology they're working on and then how that technology affects the rest of the company. And then being able to explain how your experiences align with that. And so I guess I would say I've had more of a technical behavioral where we were talking about specifics of projects I've done and like uh, mostly about batteries and how slurries are made and how composition changes rather than what does like this composition do, right? And so I know a lot of technical interviews look like, oh, draw a circuit for me or uh, what does this circuit do uh, or other things where you're working through it or a coding problem where you, you're basically like, oh, solve this problem in front of me and talk about how you talk through it. And I think that overall, the most important part is being able to explain your thought process because I feel that technical interviews are really to kind of see how you think and are you fast on your feet? Like, do you take a more fundamental route? None of it's bad per se, but it's just trying to understand who you are as a person other than your resume. It gives a better, deeper insight into how you think, how you are, how you act under pressure. That gives them a sense of who you're going to be like when you actually get a hard real life problem that has no easy solution. So I think that those are the main steps I took to try to prepare for a technical interview. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to add there that Ultimately, these interviews, even if they don't go well, they're learning opportunities. So way back in November of last year, I was kind of thinking about going in the consulting route. And so this is where David was actually super helpful was we went through like a mock case interview, which is this idea of talking through your thought process. So I figured it's relevant here. And it's something that I struggled to do at first and, you know, still struggle a little bit, but I was able to get better with mock interviews and just practicing with friends. And you even did the funny thing where you're like, every time I saw you, you would ask me a random question, like how many ping pong balls can fit in an airplane? And I just had to like think on my feet, which I'm generally not like great at, but I was able to improve upon that. So I think doing that where you can just practice, practice, practice with friends or mentors and just be willing to accept and implement that feedback goes a long way. And that could be like, you learn best by doing. So that goes a long way before your actual interview. I think one of my favorite pieces of advice is that the world is how many billions of years old everything's happened before. Almost <laughs> nothing is like entirely special. And so I think that the entire quote about history is doomed to repeat itself unless we learn from it is very relevant. And especially you can take processes and ways you think about things about certain problems and apply them to anything new. And so I think that that's the most important is just try to learn from all your experiences because it's really just how you can Learn from the past while integrating it with the new to create something that looks like something you've done. Because as soon as you've seen something, it's just like a practice test. It becomes so much easier to implement when you're under pressure. Absolutely. Yeah, there's some pattern recognition to that. It's just about finding it. And unless you have anything to add, we can kind of go into behavioral interviews, um, which I have a little bit more experience in. And one thing that definitely helped, at least with the full-time interviews, it's usually this like phone screen or like an initial interview where they really just ask about your experiences. And so just kind of preparing even before you like get any interviews, this is what I did. I just kind of had this Google doc going where I was able to have each resume bullet point and then explain it in more detail and maybe like a paragraph or just a few more bullet points, just because 
that's pretty key. They, they tend to ask like, oh, I see that you worked on creating a prototype for um, your medical device capstone project. Can you talk about that in more detail? And so you can't really like fluster there or make up things on the fly because they're able to see that and kind of catch you on that. So just preparing for that definitely goes a long way. And then from the behavioral side, it's these questions that you mentioned where it's like, tell me about a time you worked with someone that you weren't a fan of, or like that disagreed with you, or tell me about a time you failed. And so just having like a story toolkit in your mind, where it's like a set of different situations, often leadership experiences can go a long way to just like run through that and then pick out a story and explain it clearly and really highlight what you did and what the results were. I think that that's a great, basically you're talking about the star method and like there's, there's a ton of acronyms for the same thing, but I think that is worth going into and thinking about and understanding how you can say your experiences in that method. I would say beyond that, there's two huge pieces of advice that I think are the most helpful. The first one being a lot of people don't like to talk about themselves and like talk about the team environment because it makes them seem selfish mm-hmm. and selfless. It, yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. It's a new word. Uh, no. <laughs> but I, I think that it's okay to take credit because they don't really care about your partner in the eighth grade, right? They care about you right now. And so I think that that's important is that you have to kind of get over that fear of sounding so selfish. There you go. Mm-hmm. That's the right one. <laughs> and then the second one is, I think the thing that's helped me the most in all these behavioral interviews is going to the company and finding their company values. Because one major thing about behavioral interviews is that because you're not asking anything technical, the idea is that if you're a culture fit, they can teach you anything you need to know. And so that means that you have to be sure to make sure you're a culture fit. And so what that looks like is you go on, I'm sure it's broadcasted somewhere in their main company website because company culture is a big thing in almost any big corporation. And just try to align your experiences with certain principles because in almost any given interview there's a correct answer and that correct answer is their company value Mm -hmm. and so i think that's what helped me a lot is to visualize like how i can put myself into the company culture and figure out how my experiences relate to what they're trying to do and i think that that has really helped me throughout my interviews absolutely there often is that question even like why GE Aviation or why Boston Scientific? One of the first questions in an interview can be that. And so that's where this knowledge really comes in handy. And you have to just tie it in kind of subtly is explaining your own values and then how that aligns with the company values. So I think that's like a good structure for that answer if that ever comes up, but totally agree with what you just said. Yeah, And then I guess some other things in terms of preparation, I mean, you touched on the STAR method, that definitely goes a long way. I think just having that, you can even practice with friends and and mentors and stuff like that. And then just looking up the most common behavioral questions, because honestly, they're all similar. And just thinking about what the recruiter is looking for with that answer. But if, if you can answer five to 10 different behavioral interview questions that you see online, you're more than likely able to answer like anything that they throw at you. And so you know, you can find all of those interview tips online. So something that I personally loved is just using sticky notes, especially, or, you know, if if it's a virtual interview, then I just always had like sticky notes for like confidence boosts, honestly, because you have to be confident. You can't just be like shy in an interview. You have to show that you're like a culture fit, right. And that you're like enthusiastic about this role, but I know that interviews can get nerve wracking. So just having those reminders on your wall or anything like that goes a long way, or you can use that to remind you to have like good posture, like sitting upright and smiling, all those things that you can potentially forget about when you're racking your brain for stories to talk about. Or, I mean, you can even have like a little cheat sheet too with your story toolkit. So uh, that's just, my little quirky thing that that I had that I found was super helpful during my interviews. I, I definitely say cheat if you can, because <laughs> you get one shot, basically. Unfortunately, that's just how it works. And it will help you to have like your resume in front of you or any notes in front of you. I definitely highly recommend it. 
But of course, if you're like reading off a paper, like on your computer screen, they're going to be able to tell. Yeah. That's what I was about to say. And, and so make sure that it basically they don't catch you because <laughs> that would be a big doc to me is if I was talking to someone and they're obviously reading off somewhere else, like they wouldn't be able to handle any curveballs. Like they only know how to prepare. They don't know how to be in the moment. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's a very important lesson too, is that it's helpful, but usually I feel like if it's going well, I don't need it. And it's just there in case like something disastrous happens. Yeah. And I think if you're not able to find time to practice with other people, you can start by just like recording yourself or talking in front of a mirror because when you review the tape, right? Like you see a lot of things that you don't quite catch in the process. So just give yourself some random interview question and then see how you answer it and then see where you can improve. I think that also goes a long way because you can be your best critic too. I I think that's very comprehensive on interviews. So I guess to wrap this up, what is one interesting or unique tip that you do right before an interview? Is there any, do you have any pregame ritual per se? (laughs) I actually go on walks right before interviews. I actually read online that like getting fresh air, going on a walk unlocks your creativity more. And so it's something that I do just to be able to answer these curveball questions and be able to think on my feet. If I was like locked up in a room the whole morning and just like practicing, 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 then I'm doing that preparation side, but not the thinking on my feet side. So I actually take walks, like take a 30 minute walk, come back right before the interview starts, just so I'm, I'm ready to go. What about you? Uh, I just want to uh, mention that Puneeth talked about how I helped him prepare for case interviews. And I think my favorite part was that I would always say, stand up, you got to think on your feet. <laughs> and, and so I, I like to think that helped. Uh, I, I think it, it would be weird if you stood up during an interview though. So I was um, just thinking that, about that. Should I, <laughs> should people do like stand up interviews? I don't know. Or just go to set up working. I don't know. <laughs> it might be better. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, the my one tip is that uh, I think my aunt lives with me at home and she always likes to watch CBS in the morning and all these like news shows. And they said like a power pose, which is like hands on the hip and like you stand up straight. And so just, just doing that for a little bit while you just do like some uh, breathing to calm yourself, I always find is very helpful. Just like make sure that you're not shaky when you go in and you're confident and you can believe in yourself almost. So that's my tip. That's a good one. Yeah, I definitely do that one too. But yeah, I think that kind of concludes this episode. I hope it was helpful. And we have a lot more of these strategies and more specific for various industries in our MSE career development online course, like more specific resume tips for like a semiconductor role or interview questions or examples for that for like medical device industry. And so if if that's something that's of interest to you, then go to www.mseacademy.com or the link in the description. We hope to see you in our community. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the It's a Material World podcast. If you enjoyed the show, consider subscribing on your favorite podcast app so you never miss another episode. David and I also created a career development guide for MSEs, which you can download for free using the link in the show notes below. If you have any feedback, we would love to hear it. We want to grow this show with our community's input, so you can message us via email or any of our social media platforms. Links will be provided in the show notes as well. We'll see you soon. And in the meantime, go change the world.